Today on the Rise Together podcast, I have the pleasure of a conversation with Genevieve Padalecki, the creator of Now and Jen, the popular lifestyle blog and YouTube channel, but also Jen, known well for her starring role as Ruby on the CW hit Supernatural, where she's recently reprising her role after a 10-year hiatus for the 15th and final season opposite real-life husband, Jared. Jen and Jared are based here in Texas, where they're raising their three children, along with 12 chickens, two dogs, a hedgehog, and two rabbits. We have a fun conversation about life in and out of entertainment, the challenges and opportunities that come in long-distance relationship, and what it means to raise a house with humans and animals alike. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jen to the Rise Together podcast. What would the world look like if we all pushed ourselves to have candid conversations with people who didn't look like us, think like us, or live like us? I'm Dave Hollis, and I'm on a mission to learn more about this world by meeting more of the people who live here. You may not always agree with everything you hear, but I guarantee you'll come away more informed on topics you might never have thought to seek out before. This isn't just a podcast, it's a community. And when we raise each other up, we all rise, together. All right, Jen is here. Welcome, Jen. I'm so excited that you're here. As is usual on the show, I would love for you to, in your own words, explain to anyone who does not know who you are, who are you? How did you get to where you are? Uh, what makes you tick? Just give us a little bit of background on who the heck you That's are. loaded. Um, and I like it. That's such a great question because I really feel I'm coming into my own all of a sudden. So I feel like that that couldn't have come at a better time. I feel like I was had this tough exterior kind of growing up, but like internally had to be this good girl. And, I, you know, I, I feel like now 39, with three kids, and I feel like what feeds me is being completely honest about my feelings and using my words to express myself. Not that I wouldn't, that's what I say to my kids, but just really being honest about my feelings and expressing that. And I think what really makes me tick is finding ways that I can find happiness. And for me, that's my children who I didn't realize how much joy and insane love they bring to me and my husband. I also find little things like I love to read. I've just relearn to read essentially through COVID and I am it brings me so much joy and walking in nature being outside I'm really active so things that really feed me and stimulate me and um, make me feel good I feel like in turn then I don't know you you pay it forward you know you bring that energy with you and pay that forward so isn't it amazing like inside of this quarantine there has been a little bit of an inventory on what actually matters, what really matters, or even more, like I've spent some time really diving into what I want in life, which and obviously, like we should be asking that question all the time. But when you are afforded the time to reflect on the things that are actually most important and what kind of life you really want to have, in a crazy way, it starts to leave a trail of breadcrumbs to the kind of things you'd have to do to make that life come together. And I'm not sure that we usually take the time to sit in the reflectiveness that might be afforded inside of the season. And it's been, man, it's been a gift for me. Are you finding the same thing? You know, I am. It's the first time 
I have lived with my husband, which I know that sounds really crazy, but my husband has been filming a TV show for 15 years in Vancouver. So when all of this started, he, you know, came down here, he had two episodes left. And then that was the completion of the series. Personally, it meant that I had to live with him and deal with co-parenting, which was really stressful, like the thought of it. And to, to make that work. And it was crazy because we were in this tight bubble with just us and our kids. And it really was simplifying. It was, you know, like the layers are gone. The interference is gone. Drama is kind of out the window in a way. And we got to really simplify basic needs. And it's so weird how much unlayering we had to do. And that's what I'm finding throughout all of this. It's a lot of unlayering to get to the core and your core values and what really feeds you. And it's all this excess and noise and ridiculousness that I feel like at least I put up with in life and even brought on and entertained is like, I'm like, I don't, moving forward, I'm not doing that anymore. Like I want to only feed me selfishly, but, you know, bring joy in general. I feel like, you know, when I'm fed, it's like the oxygen mask, you know, when I'm able to put that on, then I feel like I'm going to be a better person. So it's just really simplifying. Yeah. You, I mean, like I'm on this planet to bring light, but if I can't get light myself, I can't give any of it. I can't pour out of, it, out of an empty cup, all, you know, all the sayings, but they're, they're crystallizing for whatever reason inside of this crazy time that we find ourselves living in. You guys have, you and Jared have had obviously uh, an existence that has been super normal to you because it's just kind of the thing that has been, but Talk a little bit about the the ways that you have had to be creative in maintaining the relationship that you have, the love that you have with the distance that's historically existed in the complexity of what it means to do the work that you both do. Yeah, I mean, I think it's finding the little things. And I've always really enjoyed having a long distance relationship with him. And it's kind of silly because in some ways it's like this vacation you have together and then they're gone. And so it's almost a superficial, not superficial, but it's um, not realistic. And when we were apart, what I would do is I would create boxes. I mean, he still has this box from, um, he was, when we first met, he was a port drinker and he had Ramos Pinto port that he loved. And so I took the box and I, I put in, you know, letters that, love letters and what have you. And, and then once we had kids, obviously it gets a little more complicated and you're strapped, but just making that time, it's so silly, but it's work and you have to treat it as such, but without it becoming monotonous, I guess, and finding that creativity in that work. And you have to work on, on, on that relationship and, and um, find creative ways, you know, cause you, especially after the two of us have been together now for 12 years, we're really different people. So you have to, you know, and you grow at different times. And sometimes you're like, I really don't like you right now. (laughs) You know, and like, then the other person grows in a different direction. And you kind of have to find that balance and that creativity to come back together and that commonality to come back together. And, you know, it's I, I can relate. There are plenty of seasons with people that have been very close to me where I may not like them. I love yeah. them, but right now I do not like you. And, and you find ways back to uh, both like and love. So I know that you are a fellow Californian turned Austinite. I mean, the second I moved here, I had to change my phone number and make sure that those license plates were gone so that I didn't get all of the looks from all of the locals. But uh, <laughs> I'm, I moved here a little more than two years ago. It has been, I think, one of the best decisions of my entire life. 
What's the transition been like for you? Have you enjoyed this uh, descending into Austin life as I have? Yeah. Well, yeah, I am. I am too. I was born in California. I was born in the Bay Area. And then funny enough, we moved to Montana. My parents said we're going on vacation and they moved us to Montana. (laughs) So um, I remember I have memories of people throwing things at our car because we had this old Suburban with California license plates. And at the time, which was like in 1994, five or something like that. And back then, you know, there was a max exodus out of California. (laughs) Once Jared and I started having kids, that's when it changed for us. And that's when we were like, you know what, we need to shift our surroundings. It's just not the right environment for us at this time. And he's a Texan. So he is from San Antonio and we came out to Austin um, on a couple of vacations early on in our relationship. And I kind of went in not kicking and screaming, but I was really looking at it with like a discerning eye and just like, why? Like, this is your turf and your people and your family. And I'm like, I don't know about this, but I couldn't find anything wrong with it. It was such a such a great vibe and so welcoming and warm and interested in where you're from. And it was such a melting pot and, you know, you really get everything here. And I, and that's why I love it. You get the outdoors, you get the city life, you get the music scene, the food scene, the people are just, I don't know, some of the most wonderful people I've ever met. And I feel really lucky and grateful to call Austin home and, I mean, I love following along with you. Yeah. Yeah. You know what's crazy? We have another thing in common. My parents, when I was in second grade, brought us into the living room and were like, uh, hey, we have some news. I know that everything that is comfortable about your life exists right here in Southern California, but we are moving to Billings, Montana. Oh my gosh, stop it. I lived in Waitress. Oh my gosh. Craziness. So we uh, got loaded up in a truck. I mean, these were the old days where my dad put a mattress in the back of a pickup truck that had a camper shell on it and drove four kids across, halfway across the country. And from second to fifth grade, I lived in Billings, Montana. And I do think there's something amazing, especially as a kid, getting a different perspective, being immersed inside of a community that requires you to make new friends. There there was some resilience, I think, that was built in it, but also some of my fondest memories ended up actually coming out of the immersion in nature. And I mean, it was a different time. It was like, hey, come on back when the streetlights come on kind of life. But there were these gullies and these rim rocks and the nature that we could just go out and, and, you know, just immerse ourselves in. And it was, it's an amazing thing. And it's going to be, I think, whether it's Austin or Montana, it's a great thing for your kids to have this experience of a different experience. The one place out of everywhere in the world that, I've gone to the one place I felt like was the most formative was moving to Montana. And it's such a strange thing. And I I wonder if you experienced this too, where I had all these preconceived notions. I was this spoiled little California kid, you know, or not spoiled, but just my world was this bubble and moving to a place where in my mind, I thought I was going to ride a horse to school and have to carry a gun. And, you know, I was like, who are these people? And it, is the one place in my life that was so challenging and so difficult to get through that and through the other side. I have the best memories. I'm still trying to go back. I keep trying to get Jared to like, like, well, he got to figure out a way to get back to Montana just because it's not in (laughs) February, but that was so tough and yet so fulfilling. I think there's something 
you know, the, the point of this show is to try and create a bridge of empathy between people who've had a different kind of life experience so that maybe there's an ability to connect with different experiences. And if there is anything in moving, moving outside of the bubble that you live in so that you can actually appreciate, oh, there are other ways that people do life. There are other, there's a different pace, there's a different prioritization, there's a different, all the things. It's just reframed each of the times that I've moved and for my kids, for sure, each of the times that now they've moved, it just opens up their eyes to the diversity and beauty that is the tapestry of different people living lives in different ways that maybe softens some of the sharp edges of their heart and opens them up to be just a little more appreciative of everyone having a, a different journey. And it's not all exactly as you maybe have grown up in this one single place. I love it. I think it's so good. I think there's so much that can be found in discomfort. And it's funny, one of um, my college counselors, so we ended up in Montana for two years and then moved to Idaho. And my college counselor in Idaho said, for, told me his advice, and I'll never forget it, was to pick a college that made me uncomfortable, just uh, uncomfortable enough, you know, to where I would have to like figure stuff out, but not, but not too, you know, uncomfortable where I would want to leave. And I still take that to every day. I, I really feel that to find discomfort because that's where you'd learn, you know, that's of course. where you get deep and within yourself and have to get dark. But it's like, a, it's an everyday conversation. I have four kids, 13, 12, nine, three, and every, every day when they are confronted with, oh, I don't know if I can do that because I never have, or, ooh, I'm not sure if I should push myself there because what if I'm not good? I am the biggest, like, no, 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 let's go. Get out into that place where you're uncomfortable because that's where you're going to learn. And even if you fall on your face, one of my sons running for class president at one time, you know, his question was, well, what if I lose? And I'm like, what if you do lose? Like the, the things that you're going to learn about yourself for having put yourself out there already put you so far ahead of the other 99.5% of people who never even ran in the election. So get yourself out there, man. Come exactly. on. Let's go. And especially now, I feel like now, you know, as a kid, learn these lessons now. You don't want to wait till you're in your 20s to suddenly get uncomfortable. Get, get over it now. Get over that hump. Be less afraid of what people are thinking and letting that affect you and penetrate you. Learn who you are now, fall on your face and get back up and keep on going. You know, it's, it's so crazy. This has been a theme of this last week. I am, we're in the midst of transitioning from having been married to not being married. And it has been a hard road. But I was in this interview at one point, months and months and months ago, where I was describing our adoption journey. And at the end of the interview, the person said, oh man, I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. We ended up having kids that we thought we were adopting, didn't end up actually being able to adopt them. Sad, tragic, the whole thing. And I said, uh, you know what? I am not sorry for having to have gone through the hardest thing, the most uncomfortable thing that I ever went through because, man, I had so much confirmation of how strong we could be. There was resilience that was being built in our kids. There was faith that, you know, when your faith <laughs> is not being tested, it's easy to say you have faith when, when you're in the midst of, you know, struggle. You get to really understand what faith is. And in just the last handful of weeks, I've had more notes from people representing their being sorry for the experience that I'm working through, that our family's working through. And I finally, just this last week, was like, 
I am not sorry. And I don't want anyone to be sorry because so much of the good that is being built out of the struggle and the hard will exist because of it being hard. And it's not a bad thing necessarily. Either you believe that life is happening for you or you don't. And I believe that it is. And so um, anytime that any of us get thrown into something that's hard, I, I don't feel sad. I, I can still hold sadness, but I don't feel sad for the situation happening as much as I'm trying every single day to be grateful for every good thing that's going to come from having pushed through the hard. Yeah. I mean, that's so great. And I'm sorry, not sorry. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I feel like life is just, it's not black and white. And just because there's a quote unquote ending, even though it's not an ending necessarily, it's just a new chapter. It's like, you know, there's this definite, this finality to, to it somehow for others. And, and the reality is you get to make up what that is. And that doesn't have to be bad or good. And, and, and that's another thing about bad and good is that I really look at it like it's not bad or good. It's just life, yeah. how we react to it. So, you know, it just, it depends on the wind changing on how that could be some days. But, you know, something good happens and something bad happens. And it's kind of the same thing. You know, it's how you move on, move through it, I guess. How do you learn from it? How do you grow from it? How does it make you feel more resilient so you can get up faster the next time? All the things. All right, let's talk animals for a second. Okay. That's a weird segue. <laughs> uh, I have a mini schnauzer here, which is nothing compared to the hedgehogs, chickens, dogs, rabbits. Oh my goodness, you write, write about all of your urban homesteading experiences. Will you uh, talk a little bit about what that term, urban homesteading, a thing I never even heard of in my entire life. I don't. What does that mean? What does that mean for you, for your family and, uh, and the environment that you're surrounding yourself with? So for me, we moved, we went on vacation and moved to Montana, um, because my family is like very into the outdoors. My dad was a big skier and hiker and camper. And so growing up, I grew up, you know, fishing and having, if we caught the fish, we had to gut it ourselves. It's starting at like seven years old and the nature and the appreciation for nature and the respect for nature is something that's part of my DNA. And, and it's also something I'm building a platform currently that will be launching soon based off of those sort of philosophies. But I, I really want my kids to have that respect too. So when we moved to Austin, we found this house and I said, oh my gosh, there's the perfect spot for a garden. I can't wait to put this garden in and we'll put in some chickens. It kind of started there. And it really started for me because I wanted my children to have a relationship with the food that they're eating. And that's not to say that they can't go eat at, you know, Hat Creek and enjoy a nice burger or something. But I also want them to understand where it comes from and how long it takes and the respect and the nurturing and all of that stuff that comes with it. So it started from there. And then the chickens grew into another coop and they kind of keep on growing for some reason, even though they're all girls, but we just keep on adding to it. <laughs> and, oh, then our cousins got rabbits for Easter and realized that they couldn't take that on. And we're like, sure, bring it on, you know? And so they're roommates with the chickens, which is super fun. They all get along really, really well. The hedgehog was, that was a, that was a tough one for me. Cause who owns a hedgehog? I don't know. Jen owns a hedgehog. No, and I, He's not fun, in my opinion. He's just not fun. And I, so my son, Tom, my oldest, he's eight, really wanted an animal. And we weren't 
for it, but we weren't against it. So we said, sure, Tom, okay, you write us a a report. You tell us how you're going to pay for it, where it's going to live, how you're going to feed it, you know, get the whole nine yards. So a couple hours later, he came downstairs with a four page, you know, construction paper about how he was going to take care of this hedgehog and how he was going to earn it. And so we said, okay, you earn this, you get the money for it. You know, you do chores and we have a cotton ball system. So it's a reward system where, you know, they have daily chores. And then if they go beyond that and do, you know, extra things for siblings or helping out around the house or whatever, they get a cotton ball. And then eventually like three cotton balls equals an app or, you know, so they equate, they have a currency. So he had to earn a hundred cotton balls to get a hedgehog. So he ended up doing that. And now we have Sonic and Sonic smells like urine. I'm not a fan, <laughs> but Sonic is here to stay for the moment. <laughs> so, so he certainly rounded out our, our, our homestead for sure. He's an interesting, eclectic little guy. Well, we have a fish too. So I, sh- I guess I shouldn't, I should give credit to Hawk living in this house as well. He's no hedgehog. I'll be honest but he's a lot less maintenance and does not in any way smell like urine. Fish poop is so awful too, though. I mean, let's be real. All right. So your first big role was on ABC Family's Wildfire. It was about a troubled teen who began working at a horse ranch. I know you were, as you said, born in LA and moved to Montana, then later Sun Valley. It feels a little bit like life imitating art, art imitating life. How does the saying go? I don't know. But uh, outside of the troubled teen part, there's a little bit of how your career uh, feels like it's kind of uh, mirrored a little bit some of the moves that you've made. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know what the craziest part is, is that so I was born in the Bay Area and the same mount. So this girl, Chris Frillo, steals this horse. She's in juvie or something and ends up taking this horse and goes on this crazy ride up Mount Diablo. And that's where I lived. So it was like so crazy to be reenacting this story. And I grew up with horses and and stuff. So it was super wild. I feel like it's been a crazy ride to, to go from Chris Ferrillo and sort of mirror it in my life too, I suppose. I I don't know if I'm that troubled as I was, but it certainly fit the role at the time, (laughs) I think being in my early twenties and kind of rebellious and I'll get a tattoo kind of thing and forget you establishment. Like I got that, you know, but yeah, it was, um, it was such a fun time. I was just talking to my co-star, Nicole, about it today, actually, and figuring out a way to do like a viewing party and resurrecting it or something. I was just talking before you came on with uh, producer Chelsea about Supernatural, which I know that you went to next. And I will confess, I'm sorry if this ends the interview abruptly. I have not watched one episode of this show. I've also not watched a single episode of television almost in 10 years. So it's not like anything against you. No, I mean, I, I think that's amazing. And quite honestly, like I don't really either. And my taste in television is a little questionable. So um, I'm not offended at all. I, um, I had never seen the show when I got the role and that would explain why in the audition, like I didn't know what I was necessarily doing. because <laughs> I was like, cause the character was like a shapeshifter, but she had two names. And so I'm like, why does she have two names? And they're like, because you were put, you're playing this girl who's this girl. And I was like, what? Sci-fi for me is challenging. I don't, it's a difficult genre, I find. And often I would, I, like, I'm more practical. And I would be like, Jared, how do, you, how do you guys afford to stay in these hotel rooms? You don't have a job. And he's like, Jen, God damn it, it's just TV. 
I'm like, Derek, um, <laughs> I don't understand it. Like, why do you, how does this happen? How do you forge your clothes? Yeah. I'm very similar, by the way. Like if there's a CIA logo on the floor, okay, I'll, take me down the road of what actually happens theoretically in the world of uh, the CIA. But when I have to suspend my belief in physics, uh, I, it, it sometimes throws me for a loop. I, I will admit, I, I used to put movies into theaters and so many of the movies I would put into theaters. Oh, that's just, were you just at Disney? I was at Disney 17 years. I was the person putting movies in theater for the last eight. And most of the movies that I was putting in theaters, I was like, all right, hold on. What would Neil deGrasse have to say about <laughs> this? I mean, like, are we seriously supposed to suspend all the things we know about physics and science and believe that this can, ha- all right, let it go, Dave, let it go. Sit back, have some popcorn. I know, I do the same thing even on Wildfire. And I would be like, why is she sleeping in the same stall as her horse? What if he rolls over in the middle of the night? <laughs> like, and they're like, just do it. It's so sweet. And I'm like, this is crazy. doesn't make sense. Well, despite me not having watched the show, I am told, I mean, I'm reading it off of a piece of paper, that <laughs> it was one of the biggest shows of the 2000s. Chelsea was describing it as a Game of Thrones-esque kind of following in terms of like the way that humans really are super deeply immersed inside of this world, which has got to feel like an amazing thing. I also assume that an amazing thing is that you met Jared at the show. I mean, you're now 12 years into being married to this human being. What was it like uh, joining a show and then ultimately creating a life with a human who was already acting in it? (laughs) Yeah, it was an interesting journey for sure. I, I didn't know much about Supernatural jumping in and boy did I get a good education about sci-fi and all things supernatural very quickly. I love the supernatural fandom. I feel so lucky to be part of it. First of all, they are the most loud and engaged and just so supportive. So I do feel really lucky about being a part of that family. And then on top of it, I got to meet my husband, which was so fast and furious. And we kind of were quick friends and then dove right into a relationship and were engaged a year later and then married four months later. It was kind of like, I don't know why. Whirlwind. It was so whirlwind. And I look back and I'm like, we were so nuts, but it just, it never felt nuts. It always felt the right thing to do. What is it like? So you're reprising your role. I mean, you took a small break, like a decade break, but here you are reprising your role. What is it like to work with him? I was just talking to someone about this that my favorite relationship with him is a work relationship. Sometimes it's hard to be married to him because he's like, he's so, Jared is so interesting because he's so, and so analytical. I mean, my, my husband, I'm going to toot his horn because he's literally one of the smartest human beings I've ever met in my life. And it's annoying because he will correct (laughs) you on words that you think he didn't even, you'll go to the, you know, the SAT vocabulary. I have a book of SAT words just because I'm like, I am going to get him. And so I'll just casually talk about something and use some crazy word in a sentence. And he'll be like, we use pronounced it incorrectly. (laughs) So frustrating. (laughs) But that's also in, in a marriage, he's also really giving. He's very, very, very giving and very emotional and supportive. And he's supportive and everything that I've done. And I feel really lucky and grateful. And I think even more so when it comes to work, he is your biggest cheerleader and it's going to be a lot of time together, (laughs) but, but funny enough, I think we'll be better at work than sometimes we are at home because I'm like, this is how the kids are. This is how I like them. You know, like this is the order that I like things in. And it's hard for me to let go. I think at home, 
but at work, it's just a really nice exchange and I feel really lucky. And he'll sit there too. If I'm not work, if he's not working, he'll take it, pull up a chair and watch me and brag about, I can hear him bragging about me and whether he's doing it for my benefit, I don't know, but it makes me feel good. And I feel really lucky that he does stuff like that. You know, it's, uh, I, it's, here's the thing. I've always said, if you have never had the opportunity as a person in a relationship to sit and watch your partner do the thing that they do well, man, like force your way into that classroom and watch that partner of yours teach or like go to like, just being able to witness the, like the awesome representation of potential being used and the gifts being put on display. It's such a, it's such a beautiful thing. One of my favorite things about my having been married to Rachel was being able to stand on the side of a stage while she was just crushing, giving a great speech because there was something so beautiful in being able to honor, oh wow, she's using these gifts that have been given to her. And uh, if, you, if you as a listener have not ever had that opportunity, man, force your way into the room. You said the word cheerleading. Uh, I, I know that, you know, he is obviously a cheerleader of yours, but he's also been pretty open about anxiety and the way that he's tried to work through anxiety. And you've talked about how you play a role in being supportive of that as a partner to him. Can you talk just a little bit about how you've approached trying to work through anxiety. There's a lot of anxious people in real time that are working through the questions of what if and how long as we're sitting inside of this uh, unique experience inside of time. But uh, anxiety is a big thing. How do you, uh, how do you deal That's with it? It's huge. Yeah. And, and first of all, I mean, I have anxiety as well. I was actually up at four this morning and wide awake, just my brain spinning and it's tough. And you know, there's so many different colors of anxiety too, you know, so it's hard to just say like, oh, we'll talk yourself through it because I've also been on the other side where you're like, I can't talk myself through it. I can't talk myself through it. I guess just know that you will get through it is the biggest thing. But for us specifically, we both are in therapy. Actually, all of us, the kids are in therapy as well. We feel really strongly like it's a workout. So, you know, we put so much emphasis on exercise. I know you're a big runner. I've been watching your stories about running, which is so inspiring. Mm -hmm. There's not enough. I think there's becoming more emphasis on exercising your brain, but I think it's just so important to continue to exercise those muscles. And that means also speaking to someone else, an expert. We both see psychoanalysts who I've seen. I mean, I've been in therapy since I was a young kid. I've seen every which way. And this just particular method is really helpful. I find in sort of intellectualizing it, almost like dissecting things and taking it apart so you can kind of remove yourself from it and look at it and then step back in. And for me, that's just really helpful, I find. And oh, I, I'm going through the same experience with a therapist in real time. And it's a different kind of therapy than I've ever been through. But it's acknowledging that a thing like anxiety is a part. Yeah. And that I, as self, get to acknowledge this part coming in because it plays a role. And so rather than assuming that I am my anxiety, asking like, well, number one, welcoming the anxiety, hello, anxiety, welcome. And then trying to, as like crazy as this will sound, have a conversation with the anxiety to understand what role it's hoping to play. Yeah. And for me, in a world where, man, I'm going through something I've never gone through, and I absolutely have the waking up at four in the morning kind of times where my mind is racing, anxiety, interestingly for me, has been more intel. It's data. It's just like there to represent, hey, Dave, 
you have not yet totally created a plan around a certain thing inside of your life. And in the ambiguity or the, you know, like missing that plan, I am here to direct you to where you could just lay a little extra focus to figuring something out. And it doesn't mean it doesn't still make me feel crazy sometimes, but I'm trying to, in a weird way, become friends with my feelings and understand why these parts have um, shown up in my life so that I can make sense of them and try and create a plan because of the fact that they've shown up as opposed to feeling like I am. I, you know, like Dave, don't feel like you're anxious, just acknowledge that it's there and then ask it what, you know, what it's doing. Yeah. Well, that's so great. And I, I love that it's almost like a signal or using it as a pathway because I was, that makes a lot of sense. Like I was up, you know, when I was up this morning and I was like, yeah, I'm up. And then I w- when I started thinking about what that meant and what I was thinking about. And then I was like, you know what? I'm up. I'm awake. I'm not going to just try to go back to sleep. I'm going to get some stuff done and organize these things that I have on my plate. And we'll see how I do. And then sure enough, you know, I'm, I was a little tired and I thankfully got to get some sleep eventually. But I, once I tackled that, I felt a lot better, which then when I woke up this morning made me think, you know what, there are some things I'm not getting enough of. Like I'm not meditating. And there's so many forms of meditation because if someone's listening or watching this and they might go, oh, you know, it's not my thing to just sit there and like tune out. But meditation could be alone in nature. Just go for a walk down the street. Isolate yourself in a room and just read a book. Go to a, um, I don't know if you've ever done a salt bath, a float. Oh my gosh, that for me is just like, it takes it all away. Right. So there's so many different things that it's like, I almost need to reset to then like get organized again. And I feel like that will at least keep it at bay. And it, it comes down also to just these healthy habits. And I know for me, I'm really bad at sometimes maintaining those healthy habits. So my running trust, it's been this combo platter of church and therapy. I'm I running long distances a lot of times just so that I can get clear not even listening to music necessarily, just allowing the thoughts that are in my head. A lot of times I'll do a little bit of journaling before I run. And, and I've, I've found that letting my hand just without any kind of prompt, write whatever is at the top of my consciousness and then putting on shoes and trying to run, I now have this like one, two thing that I get to, okay, I'm going to process this for the next 60 minutes. And hopefully when I then return, I can jump into my day having actually thought through a little bit of the things that have been sitting inside of my mind. And it's, man, it's been super helpful. But meditation in any form, whether it's on the roads in an actual guided meditation or, yep, just locking yourself in a room and reading a book, I'm, I am here for I, it. You know what? I've, so I've caught up on your stories. And I, I have to say, I am here for your running journal. Because I, when I watched you and kind of, have these aha moments when you're running. That is so me. Every time that I need to work through something, I run. It helps like, I don't know, jumble something in my brain, makes me sweat it all out, sweat the feelings out, sweat the anxiety out. And I'm always on the phone with my team like, hey, I have this great idea. What do you think about this? And they're like, are you on the treadmill? <laughs> yeah, but go with it. Come on. And I, I, when I was watching you, it's just reminded me of how I operate because I feel like I have the best aha moments, like shaking that free or something. Some people have them in the shower. Some people have, like some people, like they're everyone. I think has their own version of where they find clarity, but creating space for it and then just sitting in it has been 
such a powerful thing, especially because every one of us is processing something that is unusual and hard in these times. You have to find a way, like the oxygen mask, you have to find a way to get, get some oxygen if you're going to be able to actually show up well for yourself or other people. You have had some experiences with natural childbirth as a source of strength, which I know is a topic you have written about on your blog now in Jen. Will you just talk a little bit about that topic and why it has been so important for you to share your story with other mamas out there? Yes. So my mom had a unique story and I was the only one, and I'm the oldest of four, and I was the only one born in a hospital. And after that experience, my mom decided that wasn't the road that she wanted to take. And she had, the nurse at the hospital actually recommended, I think, her midwife or natural childbirth. And granted, she was in the Bay Area. It was very, like, that was kind of the tone and, and how things kind of operate there. And so she had natural childbirth. Now, my mom is 5'2 and, like, 100 pounds. And she's this tiny little woman and gave birth to 10-pound babies naturally. So um, I was like, well, if my mom can do it, I can do it kind of vibe. <laughs> and um, it was something that, you know, it was weird. I didn't think of myself growing up in my rebellious stage of like one day being a mom and having natural childbirth and being a hippie mama, but it happened. And once we started having kids and I was pregnant and I'm looking into everything that I, you know, I'm putting in my body and and how I wanted to give birth. And, you know, at the time when we were doing all the birthing classes, it was like crazy, like stuff like orgasmic birth to like breathing through birth, all these like crazy ideas that like went out the window with my first birth. Like literally I went to the hospital because of complications and like everything went like I got an epidural and, you know, it was just like the exact opposite. And I had my birthing plan with me. It may as well have burned it in the fire. Like it didn't even matter. And it was, it was positive experience. I had a healthy baby boy and it was great. But the next time around, when it came to my second son, we gave birth in Seattle because it was close to Vancouver. And I just found this midwife there that I, with all three of my kids, that it was just so amazing and just so supportive. And uh, my second son, I went in to see my acupuncturist, Jasmine Bay, who was also with me throughout all of my labor with all three kids. She gave me the magical pinpoints that like got it going. And suddenly I'm like, ah, what's happening? And I go back home and I sit in the bathtub and I remember reading some, something about, well, I have a little bit of wine. And I thought, okay, because supposedly if you're not in labor, you have a little bit of wine and it'll stop it or something. So I like took a tiny sip and I wanted to basically vomit. I was like, ah, and my girlfriend, Allie, who was with me was saying, Jen, you're in labor, you are in labor. And I was like, no way, no way. And I'm sitting in the the tub and then my doula came and my midwife came and we, I gave birth at home in a bed in an Airbnb and this, they don't have any clue. (laughs) (laughs) Two times I did that. And uh, yeah, it was and then my second, my third was a water birth, which the owner, if she knew would probably kill me because we weren't even allowed to cook salmon in the house because of the smell. So I can't imagine that she wanted to have a live birth in her kitchen. But it happened. This is a, a, a cautionary tale for anyone contemplating opening their home on Airbnb. These are the things that can happen. I know. You never know what's happened last in the place that you're renting, as evidenced by Jen's story. I, God I'm, bless I'm it. sorry, but not sorry at the same time. No. But, you know, I mean, it was like, it was, what are we going to do? I wasn't going to be able to do it in a hotel. Although my midwife did suggest a hotel at one point, too. But, um, 
yeah, I, I don't know. I felt so of this earth. It's so weird, but it was honestly the most amazing, powerful experience that I've ever gone through. It's similar to running a marathon, but different because you were given this little baby at the end of it. But the journey that you go through as a woman to get to that point and you just, it felt so in control and so giving like, okay, God, like I'm here. I will, I'm just giving myself like my life, like the universe, I'm yours. Here I am. You know, it's just, you have to just like give away so much power and yet you have so much control. Like it's this weird thing. And uh, yeah, I, I still pull so much strength from that and that knowing that I can do anything I feel like after that I don't know I love the duality of it all like yes you're giving it all away and also completely in control I had this mountain climbing experience that people are probably nauseous hearing me bring up every single time but there was something about climbing this mountain that reframed what I believed my capacity to do hard things looked like and it sounds like it's a very similar kind of thing right you go through something that's unbelievably bigger and more challenging and mentally, you know, exhausting than you could have ever thought of. And now come at me, bro. You can, you can, you know, you can take on whatever ends up showing up, right? What's next? Let's go. I did see some beautiful pictures of you and the fam taking, as you wrote, a little bit of a calculated risk on a road trip in the midst of lockdown quarantine time in your attempts to create some sense of normalcy during uh, the upside down times. We've talked a lot on the show how difficult the season is and how it's different for our young kids and this disruption in learning and seeing their parents potentially lose jobs or not being able to stay connected to their friends or see grandma. Tell us a little bit about how you as a family have tried to create joy moments with your kids and bursts of things that might be a bit of a distraction from what we are all inevitably going through is maybe something that could give people, you know, an idea for how they might approach joy in their own life. Yeah. Well, man, I, it's hard. Everyone who is a parent, who's anyone who's existing throughout this COVID experience, it's hard. And we're, I think the silver lining is that we're on the same boat for the most part. And it's tough. It's a struggle. I will say yesterday, my son burst into tears because he wanted to see a friend and that couldn't happen. And he's eight and it, it literally broke my heart. And I, I just had to explain to him about disappointment. We had a whole conversation yesterday about disappointment and that this will pass and, you know, kind of taking on disappointment and acknowledging it and then moving past that. But for us, it's time, I think, giving time to the kids just one-on-one. So I've been trying to take them out one-on-one on dates, whether that's a walk, a jog, whether that's alone on the trampoline, whether that's, you know, we can go to a restaurant or whatever it is, but just that one-on-one I think is really, really important for them. And if you don't have kids, that could be your one-on-one with yourself too, you know, and acknowledging that kind of with, you know, gloves on in a way, like nurture yourself and, and um, yeah. And the same with, you know, I'm trying so hard to figure out that balance. I, I feel for my kids, we haven't put them back in school yet. And there are a lot of school, their school has gone back. I really struggle with what to do, to be honest with you. It's really challenging. I think I might just rip off the Band-Aid and put them in sports soon because I also, I do worry about their mental health. And, you know, for so long I've been like, I have to do what's right for our community. I am not going to put anyone else at risk. We are on lockdown. Our kids will not be in sports. 
And now I'm like, I think I'm doing a disservice to my family. We've been at it now for, I don't know, eight months. And I'm like, I got to, I got to do something. So it's, it's, I don't, I certainly don't have the answers on this one, but I. Yeah. But by the way, though, you're, you're representing the reality of an experience that we're all experiencing. There is not necessarily a perfect answer and everyone's doing it a little bit differently. And that difference is what ends up making the most sense for their individual family. But finding little bursts of joy moments. And I, I love the idea. I've been doing the same thing. Like, how can I individually with each of these four humans that I'm raising mm -hmm. create special time that makes this experience feel just a little less daunting? And what's, what's even more, maybe more interesting in the individualized time, not one of them wants to do the same thing. They all have such yeah. different tastes. They are such individual people themselves. And so meeting them where they'd like to be met and pouring into the thing that they each like. It just looks different for each of them, but means so much. I, I'm here for that as well. I know that your next big project actually will bring you back to the small screen with Jared. I can't even believe I'm gonna say this out loud. You guys are gonna work on Walker, Texas Ranger. Let's go. <laughs> I mean, where is Chuck Norris when you need him? Uh, it's shooting here in Austin, I understand. Will you tell us a little bit about it and how excited you are to do it? Yes, I am very, very excited and very humbled. I feel really lucky, one, to be able to work again. It's been a long time since I've been on a show. And I also get to work opposite my husband. I get to play his deceased wife. So <laughs> I don't know. We can have a field day with that one. But I'm really, really excited and I've read the first couple of scripts, Jared's shared them with me, and I, I am so, so excited for people to get their eyes on the show. I really feel that it's so well done. It's so well written. It's so of the times, and I just, I feel like it's so wholesome on one hand and so, like, cutthroat and edgy at, at, on the flip side, too, and I it just, it's so fun. It's so fun, and it's here in Austin, which is so great to be able to represent our town and support our city and so I'm excited. All right, well, I'm gonna put in for being uh, like a craft service person. I don't know how to make <laughs> toast, but I am, I, one day you're gonna just be like, wait a second, is that Dave over there with the jar I, of liquid? I think we're building yes, in is. your area, so. Come on down, Let's come do on. It. We barbecue and dripping springs after one of, one, of, one of your long shoot Let's days. Let's do it. All right, Jen, I'm gonna finish this with uh, the question I ask all humans at the end of an interview, and that is if there were one single takeaway that you could leave with this audience, an idea, a question, an actionable piece of advice that would help them have a little bit more peace, have them have a little more joy. What is the single thing, what a hard question that you would uh, leave with our listeners today? You know what I always say to my kids every day? I say, say one good thing about yourself every day. And every morning when they wake up, they have to say one positive thing about themselves. And I started doing that too. And I feel like that just sets the tone for the day. If you have a crappy moment in that day, just repeat it. So good. Little mantra we have with Noah. She every day has to say, I am smart. I am strong. I am brave. I can do anything. And I love myself. She says that over <laughs> and over every single day that it's just like, it's a loop. It's like hopefully sometimes interrupting the inner monologue of self-doubt or voices that might have her questioning her worthy or enoughness. Let's go. I am here for it. 
Jen, where can human beings who are not already following you follow you? Do you have a website, any social handles? Tell us all the things. Yes, I am Real GPad on Twitter, and I am Now and Jen on Instagram. And you can also go to my blog, Now and Jen, uh, G E N, because uh, I'm Genevieve. So, yeah, you can follow me there. Awesome. Thank you so much for hanging out today. I really, really, really appreciate it. I hope at some point, as people who live in the same city, I will be able to uh, raise a glass of sparkling water with you in person. Uh, If you, as a listener, had a good time today, and how could you not have, uh, would you please take a picture of this episode on the device that you're listening to? Would you tag myself, Mr. Dave Hollis, tag Jen at now and Jen on Instagram and uh, tell every single human being you've ever met in your entire life that they need to listen to this episode right now. Between now and then, look yourself in the mirror and tell yourself how great you are. We will see you next week on the Rise Together podcast. Rise Together is hosted by me, Dave Hollis. This show is produced by Chelsea Harfouche and edited by Andrew Weller with production support by Sterling Coates. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. Rise Together is a product of the Hollis Company.